Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. And we are back with Alexandra Firth. Hello. Hi. Hi. She's a doctoral student here at Mississippi State University. Um, and I'm not going to lie, she's my doctoral student. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm proud of that. Um, but she has a lot of other experience outside of just her research experience that she's been doing here with us. So tell us a little bit about your kind of diverse background that leads into our lovely topic today of challenges for small organic growers and some of those practical challenges um, because wouldn't you expect that we would be learning from someone who has some farming experience <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead and give us a little rundown of of all the other pathways uh, your life has taken you before you came here yeah so uh, my bachelor's degree was I got it in California Northern California up in the Redwoods at Humboldt State University and it was in ecology. So I think of myself more as a systems, uh, natural systems thinker in general. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. And uh, I was a little, a little bit hippie and free spirited and just needed to like go out. And so I had all these, I, I took these biological technician uh, positions and they were seasonal. So I moved around a lot. Um, and I just started seeing all these uh, different natural landscapes butting up against these um, agricultural landscapes or more uh, managed landscapes. And so I got much more interested in like ecology within those systems, which ultimately led me to start working initially just volunteering a couple days a week, but then moving there on this small organic farm in New Mexico. Um, and I worked there, well, volunteered for about a year, about three days a week, and then moved there full time for about a year after that. And ended up managing most of the production on it. So how big was this organic farm? Because well, people have varying ideas of what agriculture is, and a lot of people just picture large industrial farms that are thousands of acres. Um, and the reality is that farm systems, even in the U.S., are a, on a huge spectrum of size and type, um, depending on what's being grown there. Many of them are still family farms and... Uh, we know that it's really important to keep families in business. <laughs> um, so we want family farms to be sustained. But for uh, just perspective, um, for our audience, tell me, tell us a little bit about the size of that farm. So actually under production, we only had one, so maybe one and a half acres under production. The land itself was about 30 acres, um, and it was located right on the Rio Grande, which is uh, the biggest river that goes through that south. Uh, western region. Uh, so it was much more lush than I'm sure most people are, are picturing in the desert of New Mexico. Um, but yeah, we only farmed a very small portion of it because it was very important uh, for the owner of the land, the, the farmer there. She wanted to keep that natural ecosystem intact. So um, it was small. Right. <laughs> but point. probably really important that she did keep it intact because, as you mentioned, um, it's New Mexico. There's not a ton of lush area, mm -hmm. only probably in places that are close to water like that. Mm -hmm. um, so really interesting, but also that she 
could turn a profit on an acre and a half because most people think like oh if i'm in a farm i need a thousand acres or a few hundred acres uh, but when it comes to more specialty crops that are inorganic in ones which you can sell uh with an added value you don't need as much land yeah and i mean it was hard so I mean, it was <laughs> back-breaking work like it wasn't like turning profit and making tons of money and you're hanging out every day drinking coffee um although there was some of that no, so we specialized in garlic and onions, um, and we grew about 70 different varieties of garlic. Which so so cool. Who knew there was even 70 different varieties of garlic? <laughs> There's one at the grocery store that I find. <laughs> and, it, like, we had them from all over the world. Like, people would uh, – we'd have friends that would, like, go elsewhere, and they'd find a certain variety at a farmer's market and bring it back, and then we'd use it as seed stock and then um, have that one growing. And, you know, most people have no idea what – um, what they're eating, like you said, but you actually can taste differences. We had like garlic tasting parties, which sounds really weird. No, it sounds very but, cool. <laughs> it sounds um, interesting. We, you know, would have this big farm dinner and have people over, and then have everybody like pull out a few different types of garlic and taste them and describe the different like nutty flavors, spicy flavors. Like it was just really cool because you don't really realize it until you have them all lined up and you eat one. You're like, oh, oh, that was painful. Versus another one where you're like, I could probably just eat this raw it's no big deal it's mm-hmm. very cool um and then we also grew onions was the other cash crop in quotations so that was the uh really the, what brought in a lot of the money but it was a mixed vegetable crop as well you have your leafy greens tomatoes cucumbers um, okra seasonally whatever is in season that's what we had did you sell those on. things too mm-hmm. we did okay we did. just not it wasn't like the main focus It was all the main focus. It's just that you can, with garlic and onions, you can produce quite a bit, and people always want it because it's flavorful. Right. It's kind of like the the fundamentals of any dish you might make, especially Mm -hmm. anywhere in the South. (laughs) Like, it's pretty much garlic, onion, pepper is what you start with. Yes. And they keep longer. So depending on the variety, it's... um, you don't have to use them right away where, you know, if you're selling vegetables and or like kale, you got to use it pretty quickly. Like you don't have it, you can't have it sitting there for a month, which right. you can with garlic. And, and I hate so. throwing food away. So I do appreciate that. I'm like, well, my garlic is still there. It's still hanging out. <laughs> still good. <laughs> oh, that's so, it, it's really fascinating since I don't come from a farming background, but I do so much appreciate farming. I'm so interested, of course, in farming since it's part of the research that we do. Um, And I'm interested about that spectrum because we do more often uh, find ourselves doing conservation research in large farming areas. But I'm always trying to figure out how we might apply that in in smaller farming scenarios and and how the resource needs are different between large farmers and more small organic farmers. so you're in New Mexico, which mm-hmm. is a very different, somewhat different climate than here in the southeast. We're in Mississippi, so a little drier. Yeah, just a little <laughs> bit. Um, so undoubtedly there's going to be some just environmental challenges, right? Yeah, so, well, it's dry and it's hot. And even though we were on the river, um, still lack of water uh, was an issue. So knowing and learning and having techniques to use what water you have effectively um, was really important. Um, And then um, 
because it was an arid desert and it was also an elevation, we were around Albuquerque, New Mexico, so we were at about 5,000 feet. Um, they're going to be, and you're in the mountains, so there's these huge temperature swings, particularly during the spring and fall, but it can go from being like 30 degrees at night up to 110 during the day, particularly wow. down right by the river. So being able to manage those huge fluctuations uh, was always a challenge. Um, heat during the summer, um, uh, just with harvesting concerns, you can't harvest in the middle of the day. Like that's you, if you're trying to harvest kale, you it's going to wilt immediately. So timing uh, of getting uh, your work done. If you have a very small window it's really in the morning. Interesting. I wouldn't yeah. even think about the harvesting the aspect evening. that if you harvest in the middle of the day. No, you can't do that. I've yeah. harvested in, at night, at like midnight before, because <laughs> it was just like way too hot. We had to have the harvest done. We were out there with our headlamps, like picking things. It was just too much. Um, so yeah, the, the heat, it's a desert. Undoubtedly. Um, um, and pests are also different there. Oh, That's a huge thing. It's a huge difference I've noticed between being in Mississippi and trying to just have a little garden and being out in New Mexico. Just because of the moisture we have yeah. here. Mm -hmm. Supporting Completely different pest ballgame. growth. That's interesting. Uh, and of course, you guys were non-irrigated, right? No, we were not irrigated. We in most farms probably are Well, not. actually, it was like a drip irrigation. We had these T-tape lined, lined out, which we okay. pumped, but it was slow infiltration. Right, which so, is a really cool mm -hmm. type of irrigation that's mm -hmm. pretty efficient it was irrigation. it above the surface of the soil or was it subsurface because i know you can do either it was above okay. which because we were on such a small uh, property that allowed us to move things around often mm -hmm. like if we needed to change the way things were working we could pull the t-tape and put it elsewhere right and mm -hmm. it's not like a huge i mean it obviously takes some work but it's not a huge management ordeal as opposed to, I know some folks that are just like 30 miles away from where we are right now and have a few thousand acres and have tried to do drip irrigation subsurface, which is mm -hmm. phenomenal if you're trying to conserve water and use it really efficiently. But at that scale, they run into so many challenges. Like if, it, if there is a, a break or an issue or a rodent chews through it, then uh, over a large area of a field, the management to fix that. Yeah. can sometimes outweigh some of the even cost benefits of putting it putting it in and using less water, which is, you know, a practical challenge. Yeah, and on that small scale, we had the same issues, so mm -hmm. I can't even imagine how time-consuming <laughs> like that would be. Yeah. Can you just move that drip tape? <laughs> um, there, are a few also, there are a few other phenomenons that happen in that climate that I wanted you to tell the story of when you came to Mississippi State because you were still farming at that time. And that heat can also create other challenges for any landowner. Yes, so it Just was to June give people perspective if they're the not from the, the, <laughs> the Southwest. It was pretty dry, June, desert, dry. We have issues with wildfires there. Um, and um, you want me to tell the whole story? Yeah, like, we were so. we were literally we were on a call, um, like our phone interview. I was interviewing her to come to Mississippi State University. Um, she just hung up on me, <laughs> but it's way it's better than that. So yeah, go ahead and tell tell our audience what was happening on the farm. So I'm on the farm. I'm conducting this interview. Not conducting. I'm having this interview for graduate school, talking to Dr. Baker here for the first time. And I thought it was going pretty well um, when 
the the farm owner like came out like came rushing out to me and I was like in our little trailer hut like trying to talk on the phone and she's like waving her arms and jumping up and down and I'm like what are you doing you need to calm down I'm on an interview right now and she's like no 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 come 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 and Dr. Baker's talking I just remember you saying yeah and I just find this so inspiring I was like oh crap she just said something really important wasn't listening to anything she said and I walk outside and there's these giant plumes of smoke um going off at our neighbors which was Oh, I don't know, maybe a quarter of a mile away. And um, um, I ended up having to respectfully tell Dr. Baker that I had to go because the farm was on fire and I needed we needed to figure out what to do. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I hung up and that was a pretty crazy day. Um, our neighbor... Um, he, he had some issues, but he had started a fire within his house, which got out of control. And then because it's so dry there and we had a lot of brush um, and a lot of trees um, hit the trees. And we, again, because it was a very wild land, it just basically took out the entire property. The actual crops were okay, but everything surrounding it, the owner lost her house. I... My little little shed hut that I was living in was okay, but um, I don't know. It was it was pretty devastating. Uh, yeah, fires. It was crazy, crazy. Which is day. just an. Uh, I wanted you to tell that story because it is another challenge of the environment. We have so much water here in the southeast um, that wildfires aren't usually a concern. Of course, it can happen, but more often than not, we're using prescribed burning as a management technique. Mm-hmm. Um, to you know manage different grassland areas manage forested areas for habitat um whereas in more arid farming climates of course it can be much more much more um challenging and the outcomes can be more dramatic because it did take a while for the farm to recover did it not yeah it's um the natural property still is not so we were surrounded by a bunch of old-growth cottonwood trees, which were just gorgeous, that continued to burn from the inside and fall down for months afterwards. And last time I was there, uh, which was this winter, things were still... I mean, they're never going to be the same when you have that like old-growth habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take a long time. Lots of weeds are back. <laughs> Obviously, the weeds right. come in. The, succe- um, the succession process is not always as lovely as you'd want it to be. But then without that cover, because we had all, so many trees, um, the temperatures rose significantly. So it was so much hotter, and it was so much harder to get anything done because, you know, shade. Just like, provides so yeah. much protection. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point, too. Mm-hmm. Aside from the actual environment, what other kind of resource barriers did you notice um, the farm owner facing being a small grower? There was never enough time mm-hmm. and there was never enough hands to help. Um, when you are a small small grower, you're very much limited by like, yeah, how many people you have or how much you can actually physically do yourself. And being a small grower, you're not going to make tons of money. So getting volunteers out there that are ready to help and learn and experience is so important because uh, a lot of time you can't hire a full-time hand. Uh, we had one volunteer that had been there for years and years and years and he was in his 80s but he was 
retired professor, like really awesome. And then um, I was there for a while. Um, but other than that, you know, you had people trickling in and out, never really staying for very long. But we became very reliant on um, people who were just willing to donate their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I suppose without, you know, that small to scale and especially with the specialty crop, there's not as much uh, mechanization in like harvest. You know, there's mm-hmm. more hand harvesting, probably even with planting. Um, yeah. Were you guys mechanically planting, or was there a process there? No, we did it all by hand. Um, We did have a very small little tractor, which would help us make beds. Um, But that was a very recent addition in, like, the last couple years is when uh, the owner had actually acquired that. So until then, it was all Mm -hmm. hand-hoed, no mechanical assistance at all. And, of course, when you're growing at a smaller scale, then you don't have as much... Uh, opportunity for kind of like bulk wholesale to one buyer, right? So you guys then were selling at the farmer's market. Farmer's market, and we did sell to a co-op. Okay. Um, And in previous years, also to local restaurants. But it was a lot of different people coming in and out. Um, Right, and that's a whole other element mm -hmm. of the management, marketing, all of that, that if if you are a large producer and you're just selling... Your whole pro- your whole harvest to one buyer, you know that's one coordination of a deal, and you're and you're seemingly um, done. Whereas if you're a farmers market and you're doing the marketing, doing the sales, going to different farmers markets because they can be multiple days of the week at different locations. Yeah, it's it like just adds complexity to what you're managing. It's like you have to have a degree in finance, marketing. MBA. Ecologists. Um, <laughs> and also be physically fit. It's like you have to be all these things yeah. in order to make it work. Yeah, the economics, too, of just watching market prices. Especially, I could only imagine with all the different varieties of garlic, choosing the price points uh, mm-hmm. for a value-added product like that. Um, so, along those lines, how do you think maybe policy, but also land-grant university extension services... Uh, could better support small growers because, you know, that's always something that we're looking to improve. And and the hardest part um, is getting feedback from everyone and people that are actually growing because when we work in these different areas, we don't always interact, although, of course, we work more on farms, but just getting feedback, understanding exactly what growers need to remain productive, keep farming, providing local and safe food sources, uh, providing economic stability and jobs and communities and learning opportunities, just like you said, because you had you had so many volunteers on the farm. I think that's one huge aspect that I meant to comment on. Um, so much of the general public doesn't know about agriculture and doesn't know where their food comes from or how differently it can be farmed, that just those educational opportunities are so important right now. Um, what do you see as areas that policy or land-grant university extension services could really step in and support uh, smaller growers? Well, I think it's two-sided. I think that, number one, forming relationships with these small growers, reaching out to them is really important. Um, And a lot of farmers and small growers, in my experience, are very welcoming to teaching about their systems, Mm -hmm. and they want people out there to see what they're doing and learning about why it's so important that you know where your food comes from. So 
um, connecting with them to make those educational opportunities happen. Um, but then also on more the land-grant side, I think we could really benefit from a program that just helps get volunteers out there, um, a constant stream of them or people who are interested in it. Um, and I know there are programs like that out there in the world, but in Mississippi in general, we're very you know rural. Well, yeah, we don't have as many big cities. It's not as good of transportation. So just having that connection there where people have the opportunity to be out there. And really, if someone just comes out and pulls weeds for a day, that's fantastic. That's mm-hmm. not that complicated. And it does. It's a it's so much help. So yeah, <laughs> so I on days that I'm quite stressed, like to pull weeds in my yard. <laughs> but I'm sure that there is a large portion of the general public that that is thinking, why in the heck would I want to go pull weeds? It's so therapeutic. Yeah, <laughs> the connection to the, to the environment, to the soil is fantastic. So I feel like there is also some kind of cultural shifts that might need to happen. You know, s- there's so much art as well as science to farming mm-hmm. that I feel like keeping the, keeping the art with the sciences, technology, and advances is going to just be so important uh, to how we view our farm systems, view our natural and now more semi-natural environments um, that provide so many ecosystem services to the human population like all of the most important things like food clean water uh clean air healthy soil healthy you (laughs) that's right awesome so fun today thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience about the your organic farming life that you once lived Um, (laughs) thank you for having me yes and i'm sure we'll have you back at some point as always you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show and we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor the mississippi natural resources conservation service for their support of this podcast thanks for joining us for coffee and conservation to find out more about the topics discussed visit the reach website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.